second of four messages on the general theme wherein we differ from traditional fundamentalism. The trend today, it seems to me, is let's discuss only the areas of doctrine on which we agree. In other words, let's avoid areas of disagreement. Let's soft pedal the distinctive truths which give us the only reason for our existence. I sense this trend even among our grace brethren many years ago. And I learned that there were some who, because of the fact that they were being opposed in their area because of the message they preached, they decided to soft-pedal the message, make it more palatable to religious people in the area. And some of us heard this expression, we want to become members of the Christian community. And I'm sorry to say that this has happened to many of our grace, so-called grace churches. Some of our pastors who at one time stood boldly for the gospel of grace and the word rightly divided and the distinctive Pauline revelation have compromised their position and now say very little, if anything, about the distinctive truths that have been the reason for the organization of Brian Bible Fellowship and other grace organizations as well. The spirit of the day seems to be peace at any price rather than the truth at any price. And I've often thought, what if Martin Luther and Justin Mark Martyr and John Huss and William Tyndale and John Bunyan, I jotted down some of these familiar names. What if those men had had this philosophy? Where would we be today spiritually? Why, we'd still be in the dark ages, I believe. And so we thank God for those who not only know the truth but are willing to stand for it. It's not going to become any easier to preach the gospel. It's never going to be really popular to preach the truth. And I don't really believe that churches that stand for the truth are very popular among other religious people. But I believe that what is most important is that we please God, and I'm sure you agree. As pointed out yesterday in our message, we want to repeat the fact that the Berean Bible Fellowship agrees with all fundamentalists on the basic fundamentals of the faith, as we call it. Our doctrinal statement is back on our table for those of you who haven't picked up copies of it. And by the way, any of you pastors or even our laymen who would like to have several copies to take home. Free, feel free to take some back there and distribute them to folks who uh, very often misrepresent what we really believe. 
However, we believe that there are some areas of Bible doctrine in which fundamentalists have not been consistent. And it's our purpose as ambassadors for Christ and as preachers of the gospel of grace to point out these inconsistencies. And we must respectfully disagree with some who I'm sure love the Lord, but who have interpreted the scriptures to fit their own particular doctrinal views, disregarding the consistent interpretation of scripture, seeing the scope of God's twofold purpose in the world, and have missed the truth of the distinctive Pauline revelation completely. Today, wherein we differ about the church, let's first define the word church. You heard it this morning earlier by our brother Caslander. We repeat it. The definition of the word church, it appears, I believe, about a hundred times. The word ekklesia, one of the few Greek words that I know. And of these 100 times that the word church, as translated in our English versions, of the 100 times, only three times is the word translated assembly. And the word church actually means an assembly of people called out by a herald. Now that's something that all of us know, I'm sure. In the Old Testament, the word church in the Septuagint is usually translated congregation. That's where we get our English word congregation, no doubt, and uh, it comes from the Old Testament scriptures. Israel was spoken of as a congregation on many occasions. There are at least three almost universal fallacies which are propagated in Christendom regarding the church. We'd like to point out what these are. First of all, that every reference to church is the same church. Let's notice some occurrences of the word. The word church is used of the Pentecostal assembly at Jerusalem. Acts 5, if you care to look up these passages, Acts 5, verse 11. And these are all familiar to all of us. I'm not telling you anything new. We're just reviewing some of the basic truths that are so very, very important. Acts 5, verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. The eighth chapter, verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Speaking here, of course, of the Jerusalem assembly, or called out number. 
It is used of Israel in the wilderness, the seventh chapter of Acts. Verse 38, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the living oracles to give unto us. It is used of the riot or the riotous mob, we could call them, in Acts 19, verse 32. I can remember when I always thought that the word church referred to saved people. It's very evident that the word church doesn't always mean that. Here's one proof of it. Acts 19.32, speaking of this great crowd in the amphitheater at Ephesus, and they were gathered there because the apostle Paul and his helpers had proclaimed the gospel and it had caused the idol makers to lose business. And those who had made idols to sell for profit now uh, had their very uh, workmanship and their, their uh, labors being challenged. And it says in verse 32, Some therefore cried one thing and some another. For the assembly, and the word assembly here is the word church in every other place except in this 19th chapter. For the assembly was confused. We could read it, for the church was confused. And that's altogether too true, isn't it, in our day? The professing church. The assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Then it's used in verse 41 of this same group, and when they had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And in verse 39, the assembly there refers to a political group, evidently the, the town fathers. And it says, But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful church. That's the word. It's translated assembly. And no doubt the translators thought that it would be rather inconsistent to talk about a mob of uh, rioters and a political group as a church. And so they used the word assembly there in our English version. However, it's the same word as we pointed out. It's used of the local assemblies of God. 1 Corinthians 1-2, speaking of the church, of course, at Corinth. The Apostle Paul addresses most of his letters to churches. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother unto the church of God, verse 2, which is at Corinth. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, again referring to the local assembly, the local church, the group of people gathered together usually in a home. Remember how many times the apostle talks about the church which is in thy house. Uh, recently in our own uh, assembly in Denver, we have uh, been talking about an addition which we hope to put up, 
And uh, I said to some of the men on the board, I wonder if there is any real scriptural basis for church buildings. It seems that in the Pauline epistles they worshipped in people's homes. However, I don't think that it's wrong to have a church building. We have one. And many of you attend church in a church building. But if we remember that the true church is not a building, and I don't think there are any passages of Scripture that come to mind that uh, will substantiate the building of church buildings as such. However, we have to realize that in Paul's day, the groups of people that met together for Christian fellowship and uh, enjoying the Word of God, they didn't have large crowds. They were small groups, and no doubt there were many of these in different believers' homes. The church which is in thy house. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Paul and Silas and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. And we have it again in 1 Timothy 3.5. So, the word church is used of the local assemblies of people gathered together to worship the Lord. And then, of course, the meaning of church to us as believers in this age, has taken on a very important definition. I'm speaking, of course, of the term the body of Christ. If you talk to the average religious person today and ask him if they know about the body of Christ, many will say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't it true that there's very little said about the church, the body of Christ? And because so little has been taught about it, most professing Christians know little or nothing about it. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The fifth chapter, verse 23. Again, the word church. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The church, which is the body of Christ, That Christ spoke of the church of this age is another fallacy that has been taught in Christendom. And I'm using the term in a broad sense. Turn with me to Matthew 16. So often referred to, even our Schofield Bible suggests that the Lord was talking about the church of this age. This we do not believe, and I'll tell you why. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail or hold out or triumph against it. Most people stop reading right there. But we ought to read the rest of the context. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ. This is a favorite Roman Catholic passage. The Roman Catholic Church, as most of us know, and I'm just stating a fact here, uses this passage of Scripture to prove their particular doctrine. And so often, Protestants, and I'm using that in a broad sense, have no answer for Roman Catholicism because they point to these Scriptures and say, look what it says. The Roman Catholic Church teaches, of course, that the church which the Lord spoke of here is the Roman Catholic Church, or the Roman Catholic Church is the perpetuation uh, of this church. The Roman Catholic Church that believes that Peter was the first pope and the head of this church and that the church is built upon him, Peter. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the keys of the kingdom was apostolic authority. Most Protestants say that the keys of the kingdom is simply stating the terms of the gospel. I've heard many sermons way, way back when that indicated that when we preach the gospel and tell people how to be saved, we're using the keys of the kingdom. This we do not believe. And it is my view that the keys of the kingdom mentioned here are the very keys which the Lord talked about in John 20, 23. Let's turn there. This is a part, of course, of the Great Commission spoken by the Lord to his apostles before his ascension, after his resurrection, and before his ascension. Verse 19, John 20, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus, and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. 
Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye power from on high. I agree with the companion Bible that they did not receive the person of the Spirit here. I believe that what they received was the power of the Spirit. And later on when the Spirit came in person upon the believers on the day of Pentecost, then he came to abide upon God's people. But here, receive ye power from on high. There's no definite article in front of Holy Ghost. That's the reason I hold that view. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. As most of us know, the Roman Catholic Church practices the confessional. And the faithful in the Roman Catholic Church are urged to come and confess their sins. And the priest listens to their confessions. I'm sure it's true that not everybody confesses all their sins. And sad to say, the priest cannot forgive a single sin. But the Roman Catholic Church says that he is the uh, delegate of the Pope. And he can therefore tell people that their sins are remitted or not remitted. We believe, of course, that here is the keys of the kingdom in practice. Now somebody says, isn't it true that only the Lord can forgive sin? Of course, it is God who alone forgives sin. But when Christ was here, God in a human body, when he was to go away, and he had told his disciples about this, he told them that they were to have the authority to act in his absence. I'd like to have you turn with me to Acts 18, because we have a continuation of, I should say Matthew 18, I'm sorry. We have a continuation of the truth in Matthew 16. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 19. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And then verse 20, But where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. My, I remember so many times in my early Christian experience being together with the Lord's people in, in Bible study and prayer, 
since I've been on the grounds this week, I've met a number of my friends from Roseland days. We used to go down to Roseland when I lived in the Chicago area a long time ago now. But I have a lot of folks around this area that uh, we knew so well back there. And I remember being in so many prayer groups and prayer meetings. We had some wonderful times. Many young people were saved in those meetings. And I didn't really know any better, but I used to claim this 20th verse as a promise for our prayer meeting. And I used to tell the Lord, along with a lot of other people, that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And I thought it was referring to a prayer group in this age of grace. I didn't know any better. But I've since learned that it's blessedly true that if only one of us are all alone in the middle of the desert, all by ourselves, the Lord is still with us, isn't he? How wonderful to know that we don't even need two or three. You see what the Lord was talking about here was apostolic authority, authority which was given to even two or three of the apostles to act in the Lord's absence. This, we believe, is the keys of the kingdom. And I would have to agree with the Roman Catholic Church that that's what the Lord was talking about here. I'm sorry that so many Protestants have not seen this. And so we want to make clear that the Lord, in talking about the church in these passages, in Matthew, was certainly not talking about the church in this age, but the Messianic church, which is yet future. Many believe, of course, that Pentecost was the birthday of the church. That expression I've heard as far back as I can remember. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute many years ago, we were taught this. And, of course, this is the traditional view. Most in Christendom today hold that the day of Pentecost was the beginning of the church today. They also believe that the pattern as practiced in early Acts was or is to be the pattern for the church today. And because most fundamentalists and most so-called conservatives or evangelicals, whatever you like, hold to this view, they have no answer for the Pentecostal fanaticism. I don't know how it is in your area, but out in Denver where we live, we have Roman Catholic nuns and priests and others in religious groups who are talking in tongues. It always seems a little strange to me for someone who comes from one of these very staid and formal denominations to get up and talk in tongues. But it's being done. And in practically all the denominations, there are tongues speakers 
and those who practice the so-called gift of tongues. However, they don't practice some of the other requirements which were made of the Pentecostal believers. I don't see anybody selling all their property and bringing the proceeds into the central treasury. Oh, I know some very wealthy Pentecostalists. I remember hearing one been some time back now. We, I guess it must have been when I was still traveling because I was home on a Sunday night. I, I'm never home on Sunday night these days. But uh, we went to a certain church, very large church in Denver, which really has a going program, I'll say that. And a man was there who spoke, and he was uh, one of the millionaires in the church. And he said, if you want to be prosperous financially, you trust the Lord. For if you trust the Lord, the Lord's going to prosper you in a material way. And when he said that, I thought of some of the saints that I know who are so very, very poor. They just manage to eke out an existence, as it were, but they love the Lord with all their heart. And I thought, I wonder how many people here will go away from this service thinking that if they only trust Christ as their Savior, then they will become prosperous in material things. Oh, that's not true at all. But you see, many of these dear people who practice some of the other things that happened on the day of Pentecost and right after are not really consistent because sometimes they forget entirely that you have to uh, sell what you have and give to the poor and you have to uh, raise the dead as well as heal the sick. And uh, I like what J. Vernon McGee said. We hear him on the radio in Denver. Some lady had written into him and said that she had the gift of healing. And uh, he said, well, if you have the gift of healing, you better go right down to the hospital right now and tell those people to stand up and walk who are laying in their beds of sickness. And he said, if you have the gift of healing and raising the dead, you better go out to the cemetery and raise the dead. That was put very bluntly, but it was, it was true, wasn't it? Oh, how many dear people, and I don't doubt for one moment their sincerity. I believe that many are dead in earnest, but they're dead wrong. in trying to practice these sign gifts which were so evident at Pentecost and days right after it. The Pentecostal movements are growing by leaps and bounds, and the reason they're growing is because fundamentalists have no answer for them. If we are to practice the program of Pentecost and that is to be our pattern for the church today. We better join the Pentecostalists 
and dissolve the BBF. Now, what do we believe? I think maybe some folks will get the idea that we're very negative. But I believe, brethren, and this comes from a number of years in the ministry, that uh, the Apostle Paul was not only positive, but he was also negative many times. In fact, he contrasted the negative with the positive again and again. Sometimes you ought to take your Bible and read the Pauline epistles through and see all the places where there's a negative statement and then the positive follows it by way of contrast. What do we believe? Well, I jotted down seven facts. There may be more. What do we believe about the church? That the church of this age, first of all, is not a denomination. It's not a material building, nor is it a church membership. The average religious person thinks that the church is a denomination, and they speak of the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, the Lutheran church, the Berean church, the Roman Catholic church, and so on. And instead of seeing that the church of this age is an organism, a living organism, so many have the wrong idea. Many think that a church membership, your name on a church membership roll, that is the church. And there are some denominations, I understand, that actually teach that the local assembly is the body of Christ. Not necessarily. Many belong to a local assembly who are not members of the body of Christ. But some think that it is synonymous. We do believe that the church of this age is never once referred to in the prophetic scriptures, including the four gospel accounts. Now, there are many who read into the Old Testament scriptures the church of this age. As we already have indicated, there are many who read the church of this age into the gospel account. But I submit to you today, which, uh, is, which is something you already know, I'm sure, most of you, that the church of today, the body of Christ, is never once referred to. In fact, there's not even a type of the church in either the Old Testament scriptures or in the gospel account. Not even a type. So many people have the idea that the church is foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I personally certainly believe in types, and so I'm sure you do too. There are many types of Christ, many types of the ministry and the work of Christ. But I'll tell you, there are no types of the church, the body of Christ, not even one in the Old Testament scriptures nor in the gospel account. The first mention of the church of this age in our canon of scripture is Romans 12, 5. You can check it for yourself. 
The body of Christ, the church of this age, is not mentioned at all in the order in which we have our Bible books. Not mentioned even once until we get to Romans 12, verse 5. We do believe that the church of this age was a secret hid in God, not in the Scriptures, just like the Pauline revelation. In fact, the church is a part of Paul's revelation, the church of this age. And it was not revealed until the glorified Lord revealed it to the Apostle Paul. And I'll just give you the location of a couple of verses Ephesians 5.32 that we read earlier, and Ephesians 3.9, of course. We do believe that the church of this age is formed by the uniting of Jew and Gentile, first of all, into one new man, Ephesians 2.15 and 16. We better turn to that. Here we have a definition of the church of this age. People ask, what is the body of Christ? You can give them Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make or to create, the word make there is create, create in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. How important to see that the church, the body of Christ, is one new man, is a living organism, and this church places into the joint body and the joint membership of the body of Christ, making us joint partakers of this promise in Christ through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 5, and 6. We do believe that the church of this age is placed into Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13 By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. And by the way, tomorrow we're going to talk about baptism. I talked to a young man who was here for this week of conference who is a little bit mixed up about this question of baptism. I said, well, we hope to go into that on Wednesday, the Lord willing. So he said, I'll be there. Maybe he's here this morning. One baptism of the Spirit. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Very familiar verses to all of us also. And we no doubt will refer to these tomorrow, but I have to mention them here too. For ye are all the sons of God by the faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ. You see, those dear people who read water baptism into this portion make water baptism the means whereby we are placed into Christ. You can see, can't you, why there are multitudes in Christendom who practice water baptism for salvation because they believe that some drops of water on your head or baptism by immersion puts you into Christ. And they use a verse like this to prove that. We'll say more about that subject of baptism tomorrow. Our sixth fact that we do believe regarding the church is that the church of this age was still a secret at Pentecost, the Jewish feast day. We believe that God's prophetic program had not been set aside as yet, and that Israel was offered the kingdom in Acts 3. Now there are those who teach that Christ offered the kingdom when he was here on earth. We certainly don't believe that. But the kingdom definitely was offered in Acts 2 and 3. I uh, rather believe that it was offered to individuals in Acts 2 and to the nation in Acts 3. Pentecost, we believe, was a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Now there are various views on this. I uh, think that as far as I can understand now, I believe that this was a partial fulfillment. Certainly it was the complete fulfillment. And uh, as one uh, translation has it, Peter said, this is like that of which the prophet Joel had spoken. Joel 2, 28 to 32, by the way. Also, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, for those of you who are writing the scriptures down. We believe that the kingdom offer rejected in Acts 7 and that Christ was rejected in resurrection, not only in his incarnation, but in resurrection. And this rejection of Christ, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was committed by the nation Israel, by the leaders of the nation Israel, we perhaps should say. And we believe that God's secret purpose for this age was revealed to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul called it the mystery, as our brother Castlander said earlier this morning. And many people, when they hear that word mystery, they're very much confused. You ask the average religious person if he knows anything about the mystery, and he would say, what's that? The mystery was simply a secret that God had hidden away in himself and it was never revealed until revealed through the Apostle Paul. I say in closing,
putting the church in its rightful place in God's program is the only answer to both Catholicism and Pentecostal fanaticism. And we believe that the BBF, in its doctrinal statement, has this correctly, scripturally, and dispensationally correct. And I'd like to ask, as we close the service this morning, do you belong to this church, the body of Christ? You can belong to a dozen church organizations and not be saved. Think of the people who are church members who have never become a member of the body of Christ. How do you become a member of the body of Christ? By simple faith in the finished work of Christ. He died and bore your sins and my sins in his own body on the tree. And because he died, the penalty that you and I deserved to pay, he paid in our stead. And now God wants us to believe that and appropriate it for ourselves. God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead because we had been justified by his death upon the cross. How wonderful. One day he's coming back again to take us to be with himself. Are you a member of that church that we've been talking about here? If you're not, you can be. Right this morning, by trusting Christ for yourself and believing the gospel, as we said, for yourself. We can't give you anything to do because there's nothing to, to do. Christ did it all. He simply wants you to appropriate it for yourself. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of sharing these thoughts with all of our friends today. We thank Thee for the precious Word of God. We're so glad for a measure of enlightenment and understanding which thou hast given each one of us. We pray that we may be diligent students of the Word of God and see for ourselves the truth that we have considered together today. Help anyone who is not a member of the church, the body of Christ, to trust the Savior even this morning. And may they pass out of death into life to that assurance and that blessed hope. We commit the result to thee, and we thank thee in the Savior's name. Amen.